welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alain Ben-Mir. Today's guest is Sean Yam, Associate Professor of Political Science at Temple University and Senior Fellow in the Middle East Program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He is a specialist on regimes and governance in the Middle East, especially in Arab monarchies like Jordan, Kuwait, and Morocco. In this episode, they discuss the advantages and disadvantages of monarchies versus liberal democracies, American foreign policy in the Middle East, and the United States' relationship with Israel. So again, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And and um, as I said earlier, you know, I read um, much um, any any material that you wrote recently. Uh, needless to say, I'm quite impressed with the, with the views you're taking on the issue of monarchy. I would like to ask you to begin with what what it is that you feel, given the specifically in the last few years uh, here in the United States and as well as in Europe, as is a definite movement towards the right. And there's certainly polarization that is uh, gripping the uh, political scene here in the United States. Compared to being a political system based on on monarchy, if you you look at these two systems and contrast one with the other, where do you see the advantages and disadvantages of both political systems, given your experience and research in this area? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I I think that what monarchism provides uh, is longer periods of relative stability, uh, but beholden to very sudden periods of instability. Uh, I think the advantage of democracy, in con- if you, we compare. Uh, liberal democratic systems, uh, like in most European countries or the United States, uh, despite recent gains by uh, right-wing national or populist uh, forces, is that there is always going to be a relatively frequent rhythm of election that beholds the promise that there will be an alternation of power. There will be a different ideological current that rises to the fore and a very different kind of political style, a different set of policies, and a different impulse and national orientation could coalesce at the highest levels of government. I think if we compare that to monarchism, in in liberal democracies, because of the frequency of elections, we get much more, I think, predictable and frequent alternations of those ideologies. Uh, And so what we're seeing now in many European countries and in the United States and some Southeast Asian countries as well with this rise of right-wing populism is, I think, a phase, but we call it a phase, not a reality, because most of us expect that the phase will end at some point. I think the problem with ruling monarchism as a uh, governing system is that you know, when we look at cases like Morocco or Jordan or Saudi Arabia, when kings ascend to the throne, provided that their health is good, they tend to rule for a very long time, you know, measured not just in years, but decades or generations. And there are two vulnerabilities with those kinds of systems. One vulnerability is monarchism is a genetic lottery. And so no one except the ruling family, and even then the lines of succession can be uh, at times very rigid. Uh, Very few stakeholders outside the royal family have any input or voice as to the choice of the next leader. And so it's really down to, in terms of choosing the particular ideological current or in terms of choosing the particular orientation of the country, it's down to essentially 
genetically who among the tiniest group of people chosen arbitrarily by some dynastic rule installed perhaps centuries ago, if not generations or you know, even earlier in some post-colonial cases, who among that tiniest group of people will, and will, will be selected to govern potentially for many, many years and thereby enact a long period of ossification or stagnation or maybe prosperity. But once that period sets in, you know, unless there's a coup, unless there's a death, um, unless there's a major shift in power, uh, that country, that ruling system is stuck with that particular ruler for a very, very long time. And once that ruler passes away and another takes the place, again, the vast majority of that society, in fact, 99.9% of that society has no voice and no input in the selection of the replacement. It goes back to the genetic lottery. And so in monarchism, you know, it's deceptive insofar that you can have longer periods of stability, but those periods of stability can be appended by very, very rapid changes uh, and unpredictable styles, which are determined purely by the idiosyncrasies of what's happening inside the dynasty uh, or the royal house. And I think we're seeing that right now in Saudi Arabia. Um, I think, for instance, if you compare that with the, with the rhythms of American politics, uh, many of us who, you know, for, for say, for, for the typical American who may not have voted for Trump, the saving grace with the American political system is the notion that if not 2020, then in 2024, it will all be over. If you are a Saudi citizen and you are opposed to the reign or the rise of Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, and he rises to power when his father passes, you may be stuck with him for the duration of your lifetime. And that's a very scary proposition. So, so then, where do you see the advantages? Now, you, you indicated before in terms of um, uh, democracy, whereas, for example, in this country, there's a, there's a term system. A president can be elected to two terms. If you don't like the president, even you can get rid of him in the first term. That is, yes, in democracy, one government could have a certain idea, certain policy, certain uh, objective, and the next government might have different kind of objective. We've seen this just last three years between Obama and, and, uh, and, and, and Trump. Uh, there are, however, certain advantages. That, that is exactly what you said. The public here can decide, well, this president is bad. I want to get rid of this president, and he can do so. In the monarchies, exactly what you expressed, uh, well, the people can get stuck unless you have, a, say, a king, say, like the king of Jordan, who I can say we call benevolent king. Uh, and in fact, when they are, as you stated and you said in your own writing, when there's a problem, demonstration, all of that, he first expressed sympathy. But then, of course, he could also use a kind of necessary, quote-unquote, force in order to quell things as peacefully as possible. When we, and he has been extremely successful. Now, how do you contrast the two? And why would we support, given also the example they just mentioned in Saudi Arabia, why do you think monarchy? might work better given our circumstances nowadays? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, well, I think that defenders of ruling monarchism would point to the fact that if you happen to strike it lucky in the genetic lottery and you happen to have a benevolent king who does not repress very viciously and enacts many social or economic or political reforms, and you have that individual in power for a very long time, then 
you can indeed have a relatively uh, long period of stability or at least predictability in politics that you wouldn't get um, in a liberal democracy where you have constant turnovers uh, in government. I mean, that the, the, the argument for ruling monarchism, when you divorce it from religious justifications or cultural justifications, is one built upon institutional predictability and political constancy predicated upon the same dynastic house and the same bloodline having a monopoly over the levers of power. And that can be an anchor of, I think, security for some defenders um, of that ruling system. Now, I tend to veer in a bit more cynical direction. Um, I think that's entirely possible that you can have a very, you can be very lucky and have a benevolent ruler in power for a long time. I think the problem with that scenario is that if you strike it lucky in that genetic lottery, nobody in society had anything to do with that individual coming to power. Uh, in other words, in, in, in a liberal democracy, if, if there is a particularly effective government that comes to power, that is the work of society. That is the work of campaigning. That is the work of a political preference or political preferences among the masses, which amalgamate, are expressed through elections, and the government that's produced by that theoretically is the product of society. Uh, nothing about succession and nothing about how a, a good or bad key comes to power has anything to do theoretically with the electoral preferences or political interests of society. It's entirely decided within an incredibly small group of people. Um, and uh, as a scholar who's studied these systems for a long time, I do have a fundamental normative uh, disagreement with that scenario. The idea that whether you are lucky and get a good ruler or you're unlucky and get a bad ruler, what society feels doesn't matter because it's entirely a stochastic random process almost. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, <clears throat> but from your perspective, uh, given, given how we politically, I mean, as I said earlier, that we, globally, to some extent, we're moving more and more toward the right of center. Uh, at least in the last um, 10 years or so. Uh, and there is apparently a, a rational reason for it. Why do you see that trend going? Why is it occurring at this juncture? And, and, uh, and in that context, what would be the alternative to maintain? That is, we want a system that is going to be responsive to the needs of the people. And now we have a number of such political systems all over the world. Now, if you were to choose one, what would what what is the kind of recipe of a system that you would describe that would be best fit the 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 our conditions, our circumstances nowadays? If there's yeah. such a thing, yeah, no, that that's a great question. Uh, I, I I would still I would still gamble uh, entirely on the promise of liberal democracy, um, because even again, I think even if you're stuck with a particular government whose policies you tenaciously disagree with. Uh, and whose ideological origins you find you know, ethically repugnant, if not philosophically offensive, there is always the promise, so long as there is rule of law and the promise of another election, there is always the hope that things could be better, not just within your lifetime, but within a countable number of years, right? Three years, four years, six years. Um, you know, you don't necessarily get that in, in any kind of authoritarian system, whether it's run by a general, a grand leader, a sultan, an emir, a king, a ruler who decides that uh, that office of political power belongs to him uh, for life. 
I mean, I think that right now around the world, um, I think that there is there are there is a confluence of economic and social conditions, uh, which help explain the rise of uh, the, of the populist right. Among them, I think every country varies, but some general patterns we can draw upon are uh, the the instrumentalization of grievances by some marginalized groups in society, backlash against progressivism. Uh, the, the the nuances of some electoral systems, which reward small gains with uh, with, with 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 relatively large seats um, in national parliaments, um, and I think the ideological savvy of some peddlers of right wing populism uh, in terms of how they uh, appeal to people's preferences, and they do and they they play the game of politics, and they promise uh, they 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 promise a better future if only that they would get those votes at the ballot box. Um, but I do think it's a phase because I do think that regardless of the marginalized groups in society that they draw upon, regardless of their ideological savvy and regardless of the nuances of these electoral systems, I think that this phase will end. Uh, when it will end, I'm not sure. But I would call it a phase, not a new epic, uh, not a new reality, because uh, I think it is temporary. Um, and I think in the broad macro-analytic historical swing of things, you see these schisms and you see these currents go back and forth between left and the right. And I think that's part of the, 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 un, the I think that's part of the unpredictability about living in, in, in a liberal democracy. But I also think that, you know, to, to, to paraphrase Adam Jaworski um, and your colleague at NYU, I think that, you know, that that's both the promise and the peril of these kinds of systems. That when you accept institutionalized uncertainty, you have to take the good with the bad. If you accept institutionalized certainty rather than uncertainty, like in an authoritarian system, whether ruled by a Republican or a monarchical leadership, you know, you, you pray and you hope that the genetic lottery gives you a good ruler. But that's the only hope you have for a better future. And that's a very, very dangerous gamble, I think, particularly in today's modern world. Um, if you're thinking about what are the elements of good governance, how do governments effectively contain public health crises like the coronavirus outbreak, um, you would like a chance at the ballot box to elect a government that would do a better job next time if you don't like the government that you're stuck with now. If you're stuck with the king who does not do a good job, it doesn't really matter. You have to live with that government for another generation or two. That's right. Yeah. If I, if I may, I'd like just to, you know, given that you have uh, uh, extensive experience as far as United States foreign policy in the Middle East, I've been involved in the Middle East in various capacities and negotiating behind the scene. So I'm quite familiar with what's going on there. Uh, what is your take at this juncture as far as the uh, the United States foreign policy under because you know we cannot say United States foreign policy in general because it's been somewhat different to some extent other than more or less the consistent support of the state of Israel by various uh, um, successive American administration with, with some reservation some some of the you know, like for example President Obama opposed to the settlement. Um, uh, other presidents like uh, the senior Bush was uh, had had some confrontation with the Shamir of the, of the time, but on the whole, there was significant support, consistent support of Israel by the United States. And at the same time, United States was also maintained very good relationship with Israel's enemies over the last two or three generations, for that matter. Where, where do you see now American policy? 
is going given the dramatic changes that have that sweeping the region. To what extent can the United States still maintain its influence given, for example, last three years what, has, what President um, Trump has done, basically openly, clearly sided with the Israelis, and to, the, to a great extent he might have destroyed, at least for the foreseeable future, any prospect between Israel and the Palestinians? Yeah, I, I, uh, that's, a, that's a broad question, and I'm glad you asked it. It uh, is very broad, but it's a... Yeah, <laughs> I no, would I... like... <laughs> I get take on it. <laughs> um, I, so I, I think there are two there are two components to the answer, uh, and they're somewhat related. So let me get to the broad question of foreign policy, and then tackle the U.S.-Israeli issue. I think at the broadest level, what we see with the Trump administration, despite on the surface very different styles of rhetoric and very different styles of decision making from the Obama administration is actually a great deal of policy continuity. What we begin to see in Obama's uh, first term, and it accelerates in the second term, and it, it, it's, and it continues to logically culminate now in Trump's um, time in office, is a gradual withdrawal of American hegemony from the Middle East. And by that, I mean, you know, if, if you look at the, the, the historical arc of the U.S. presence in the Middle East, the U.S. has been involved in the region for a very long time, uh, you know, since, uh, you know, since the, the, the earliest days in the post-World War II era with the, with, with the Truman Doctrine, and then accelerating with U.S. involvement in various Arab-Israeli conflicts and U.S. support for different client states uh, like Jordan, for instance, or Saudi Arabia, and different intercessions in regional conflicts like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You know that the, the high water mark in this historical arc begins of, of, of American hegemony begins in 1980 uh, with the Carter Doctrine and uh, his proclamation that the U.S. will use military force, coercive firepower, if need be, uh, to battle away any external force that 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 that, that would hostilely take over um, the uh, the you know the. The, the Arabian oil fields um, and yes, the assets yes. of the yeah, of the Gulf. Now, from that period on, right? If you count the number of U.S. interventions in the Middle East, it, it's immense. I mean, think about the that the tanker wars, the Iran Iraq war, the U.S. interventions in Lebanon and Libya and Iraq several times. Um, right. You know, it's 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 an immense infrastructure of hegemony, and 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 that that infrastructure is expressed in the course of firepower the U.S. still has in terms of its naval bases, its air force bases, its army bases, its drone bases, its special forces, its intelligence assets. The fact that in many Arab countries, the second most important building in the capital is the American embassy. These are right. all expressions of American power. But the exercise of American hegemony has always been measured by a single metric, I would argue. And that metric is, is the U.S. willing to use coercion, military force, to destroy a threat that it finds existentially imperiling its fundamental security interests, which is to say, is the security of the American homeland, right? So not just distant strategic interests in a land that most Americans would never visit, but the interests of the American homeland, the political institutions of America, the economy of America, the social fabric of America, are they imperiled by something going on in the region? And if so, is the U.S. consistently willing to destroy that threat, even if it goes against the preferences of those living in the region? So 
going into the tail end of the Cold War, you could argue that, yes, the interventionism the U.S. sought to impose across the Middle East expressed some fear that the Middle East remains a strategic battlefront with international communism. International communism was a major existential threat because the fear was if it spread, then the American way of life and prosperity would be destroyed. Think about the oil crisis. You know, the, you know, before America embarked upon its journey to become more energy independent, the fear that Arabian oil supplies would be choked off by hostile radical forces, whether it was Iran or Arab nationalism or the Soviet Union, was an existential threat to American consumers and the American economy. Then after 9-11, we see the threat of terrorism, hence the global war on terrorism. But by the late 2000s, you begin to see a shift in thinking in Washington. And both parties, both Democrats and Republicans share this, in which I think there's begrudging recognition that there's nothing left in the Middle East that actually existentially threatens the American Republic. So if you think about the most alarmist threats that have emanated from the region, as, as, as described by the Obama administration or the Trump administration, it's been ISIS, it's been Iran. It's been the threat of terrorism or the threat of a radical state, right? Those are not, I argue, existential threats. They're not existential because Iran has no ambition to conquer the American homeland or to attack the United States. And the arc of most modern terrorist groups with Al-Qaeda being all but destroyed is no longer to attack the American homeland. I mean, ISIS did not want to land soldiers in New York City. ISIS wanted to conquer a caliphate in the Levant. That was the horizon of its ambition. It did not want to expand to Canada and North America. And I think that with the decline of existential threats from the Middle East, there's been some con con continuity in thinking by policymakers that this is not a region that America has to dominate anymore in order to secure the interests of the American homeland. I think that thinking is what partly motivated Obama to pivot to Asia. And that thinking is also what explains why Trump, despite endless provocations uh, in the Arabian Gulf from Iran, despite numerous opportunities to launch full-scale military conflict against Iran, has repeatedly backed down. Right? The, 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 the U.S. campaign against Iran has always involved, since the Obama administration, whether it's been through negotiations or threats or sanctions, it's always been to contain Iran, not to conquer Iran. And I think that's a very, very different worldview than if you compare that with the Bush administration's rhetoric, the, the, the second Bush administration's rhetoric against Iraq, where the goal very much was to conquer Iraq. It wasn't simply to contain Saddam. It was to conquer Saddam. And I think that shift in thinking reflects an overall I think uh, a, a new structural reality. I would not call this a phase. I would call this a new reality where America will keep its military assets in the region. It will maintain the paramount power, but it will not be for lack of capacity, as to say lack of resources or military forces that the U.S. no longer exercises its hegemonic prerogative to destroy threats and to regulate the region. It simply looks at the region with a more distant eye and 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 maybe puts out brush fires and uh, you know, engages major crises as they explode if they threaten to append regional order, but no longer seeks to enter into countries and change state-society relations by toppling regimes and redrawing the strategic map of everything happening in the region. Now, 
it, it, you know, it, I think that issue now links to Israel uh, in, in, in two ways. Just, just before we go uh, to yeah, Israel, I'm sorry. Yes. Before we go to Israel for a second, that is, um, if we define uh, American uh, presence in the Middle East in the way it is described, in all, you know, militarily and otherwise, in terms of eliminating or reducing the threat, existential threat that can presumably. Uh, the uh, other powers could pose against the United States. And the United States was, and oil played significant role, of course, in that respect, now that the United States less independent on oil, Middle Eastern oil, so that you define that by existential threat. I sort of feel that I, I don't think the United States has never been existentially threatened, regardless of what's happening in the Middle East, and that American forces in the region are not only protecting the or resources. If that was the case, then America would have we would have withdrawn some of our forces. Now that America does not really depend one hundred percent, it doesn't depend really much on oil from the from the region. But the United States other has other geostrategic interests in the Middle East that, in fact, uh, are equally as important, if not more important, than the, the the oil itself. Don't you see it? Don't you don't you think that? Uh, American presence in the region in terms of commitment to allies, in terms of projecting power uh, to prevent others from getting into into its uh, area of, of, uh, of influence played a significant role that, that other than actually the oil itself? No, yeah, that, 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 that's a great point. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I don't think that We've reached a, we, we, we have yet reached a reality where America has no tangible interest in the region. I mean, there's still very many. I mean, even excluding Israel, America has commitments to its allies like Jordan, for instance, or Morocco. Uh, America has allies to its diplomatic uh, strategy in terms of extending, hopefully, a democratic norm or value across the Middle East. America has cultural interests in the region. Um, I mean, the, 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 the region as a geographic crescent still has value in the grand scheme of American global strategy, uh, I would just argue that it doesn't. It no longer has the kind of frontline value that it used to that compelled virtually every presidential administration to wage some kind of war, right? sustained war in the region against some authoritarian foe. Um, and I think we're going to reach a stage where, or, 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 or a segment rather of, the, of this new reality where we might even hear within the next five or 10 years of an actual military drawdown in the Arabian Gulf, uh, where some of those bases will begin to diminish or funding for those bases and our forces in the region will, will begin to be reallocated um, to other parts of the world. Uh, and I think that's not, you know, whether or not we interpret this as America turning its back on its commitments to allies, or America simply making, as a global hegemon, a logical choice to allocate its resources to the next frontier of competition, which is likely East Asia and China. I mean, I think that's where strategists to debate. But what, what I sense uh, from a more theoretical perspective and thinking about the structural primacy of American interests is that every time an American administration comes into power, um, you know, since the Bush administration, and calls something uh, you know, a, a, a millennial foe, an existential threat, the greatest enemy to American homeland security. I mean, that kind of rhetoric to me, and I think to many people in the American public, no longer has any sort of credibility. I mean, if, if I think about this logically, 
So again, we have diplomatic important diplomatic commitments and important uh, obligations to our allies and other cultural and social interests and economic interests in the region. But if you just narrow in on the language of threat, when the Trump administration calls Iran, say, the greatest threat to American interests right, in the world, or the Trump administration calls ISIS, the, or even the, the Obama administration, or members of the Obama administration call ISIS and the, the disaster in Syria a dire existential emergency that threatens American lives and therefore it requires some kind of containment, I wonder, you know, in, 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 in the history of great powers, you know, what what is the logical response to threats which are called existential? So in the Cold War, right, there was, you know, America indeed mobilized its military forces and industrial forces as well, its economy, um, you know, to, to, to fight these existential threats. We had conscription in the Vietnam War. Right? You know, we had an actual national level effort to eliminate foes that we actually thought were going to somehow reach into the American homeland. You know, since the global war on terrorism, and if you think about the multilateral intervention in Syria and think about limited actions against Iran, there's no talk about military conscription. There's no talk about economic sacrifice. There's no talk about the average American consumer having to give up anything to make sure that this threat never reaches the shores of the United States. And I find that to be very, incon you know, just an incongruous fact. You know, if something really is that dangerous, shouldn't we all be mobilizing in America to destroy it? But I don't see that. I, I, I don't see for the last 10 or 12 years anyone in Washington suggesting that, which to me signals that this kind of rhetoric is more alarmist than a reality of the, than a reflection of the actual structural importance of the Middle East anymore to American grand strategy. So let's, let's go then, you know, um, I mean, I, I would have raised different, uh, different um, commentary on what you have just said, but nevertheless, I'd like just to move in order to save a little time. And I mean, I agree with you in principle uh, about, about the, 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 what you have just said, except that I'm not sure that uh, the Obama administration, certainly not the Trump administration, and even before that, they have made this type of calculation that you so eloquently described. And, and I think these type of consideration was rather missing, going back to the Bush, the war, the war in Iraq, the Iraq war, which was totally misguided and was waged under completely the false premises. Uh, even intervention uh, to, to get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait uh, certainly, certainly, what um, the our uh, lack of involvement in Syria and allowing the strategy to, that nothing like this happened since World War II, both under Obama and then subsequently under Trump. I think uh, uh, I don't I don't think there was uh, necessarily a you know well calculated strategy as how to deal uh, with the with the Middle East, and I'm not sure that uh, had you been offering this type of advice and this real strategy, a comprehensive strategy, we would not have been witnessing what we have been witnessing in the last 20 years in particular. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure to what extent uh, these governments, even Obama for that matter, uh, decided what he decided, for example, in connection, as I said, with Syria. Wasn't that a terrible mistake? But then again, we went back to Syria to fight ISIS. Uh, I, I see discontinuity. I don't see consistency. Uh, um, I, I don't see 
necessarily how that translates or does not translate to existential threat against the United States. I th- my concern about the American foreign policy in the Middle East right now is a lack of consistency. Other than there is, yes, we have allies, we support our allies, and anything that goes over the interests of our allies translates as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a lack of support to our geostrategic interests in the region. That's where things stop. But there is no long-term strategy as to where the United States should be 10, 15 years down the line. I don't think there's any administration is thinking in those terms. Do you? No, I mean, yeah, that, 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 that's an excellent point. I, I, I agree with you in principle, but I, I would interpret that a bit differently. I would say it's easier to think about a grand strategy for a region if you have uh, a, a, a grand foe or a threat to destroy, a mission that gives, I think, some kind of credence to your hegemonic domination uh, of a region. I think that it's difficult to find this when there's an absence of, of overt enemies. Um, and, you know, this, this is not, you know, I, I'm certainly not advocating for this kind of thinking. I, I, I'm looking at the matrix of American policymaking and I'm asking myself the same question. You know, how is it that if we think America has a more moral responsibility to prevent humanitarian tragedy, how come America has not done more in the region? How come America had such a limited intervention in Syria? How come America and you know participated in the NATO campaign in Libya against the Gaddafi regime and yet uh, has all but folded its tent and given Libya to the wolves and descend, and, and, and without much presence in nation building in Libya, I think it's much more difficult for, for policymakers to think of a long-term vision for the region if they don't have a militaristic threat to fight against, if they don't have a singular mission. And I think that in the Cold War, it was very easy because of the Soviet Union. And up until the 2000s, it was easier to do because of the, the, the fear about oil and, and the energy crisis. And even in the 2000s, it was easier because Americans had traumatic memories of 9-11 and the fear that they were indeed under attack. Once those memories begin fading away, it's harder, I think, to move national sentiment to justify a, 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 a hegemonic exercise of power, even if, if it's for, on balance, the collective good, which is to prevent an, a, 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 tra- a, a human tragedy of catastrophic consequence in a place like Syria. I think that policymakers, both in Obama and Trump's administration, could not think of that kind of long-term uh, strategy because American grand strategy in the region is not used to thinking in those terms. It's not used to thinking in terms of how do we act in a region if we don't have a militaristic goal to strive for. Yeah, but, but then again, but then again, if I may, you know, but then again, our inability and unwillingness to interfere in Syria. Uh, and if we are concerned about ally alliances in the region, be that Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and others, there's no question. Whatever that can end, however the situation going to end up in Syria, is going to have direct and indirect impact on our allies in the region. And today, the United States has practically zero say as to what might, what is the future of Syria is going to be. Yeah. And when also we're talking about long-term strategic interests, I'm not necessarily saying. Uh, you have to deal with the region as a single entity. But take Iran, for example. Why aren't we having a clear uh, position in terms of strategy, what to do about Iran? I mean, Iran is there to stay. Iran is not going to disappear. But the problem, I think, and I think I'm sure you, you agree with the premise that 
our the, the the fault line, our approach to hold all these crises and issues is that we go there and we try to introduce political system that these people have never had, never experienced, and don't want to have. And we go back to where we started democracy versus versus uh, um, uh, the uh, not authoritarian, you know, but you know, kingdom like we have in Jordan, we have in Syria, mm-hmm. uh, we, I mean in Saudi Arabia. So, so our approach to, to the region was that, be that Libya, for example, and we intervened there, but then we, de- we de- left then Libya to, to, to deal with his, with his own ruins. And we trying to introduce system, be that in Egypt again, that really did not fit the condition, the circumstances, the history, the people, the culture the, of these countries. And so that is what I'm saying is, we have had no real sense, no clear understanding what this region is all about other than initially we focus our interest because it has oil. Now that the oil is no longer as necessary, we are now wondering as to how, what is going to be next. I, I see that, I see that, uh, I don't see, uh, I have no hopes for the, for the Trump administration to do anything, to have any vision for a long term. But where do you do you see uh, do you see uh, any prospect for America to reevaluate what's going on, what's going to happen, where do we go from here? I mean, in the final analysis, this region is important also not because of oil, because it's a proximity to Europe. We have alliances in Europe, and what happens in the region impacts the European Community as well. So we need to have some kind of a vision at least a vision, if not specific steps, a specific measure uh, to, to as to how what to do with that region. And I don't see that happening. Do you see any sign of that? Where do you think, where do you think we're going to be five, 10 years down the line if we do not articulate some kind of strategy vis-a-vis say, Syria, vis-a-vis Iran, vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia, I- Israel? Uh, because well, I, in dealing with these countries independently, you know, separately, Without, and where they are interconnected in some form or another, and having no clear North strategy, I, I think we are going to be losing our, um, our strategic interest there by default. That's how I see Americans moving in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 actually, I, I agree with you uh, on that point 100%. I mean, I think that looking at the region as a fractious landscape of many different states without a coherent overall vision for as a great power, what American interests should achieve. I mean, even leaving militarism aside, I think that by not looking at the region as a coherent whole, we end up with what we have increasingly now, which are very different strategies to deal with very different states, which is to say the American assumption has been, we'll leave Syria to whatever it's going to be, but we'll continue to give massive support to Israel and Jordan, and we'll try to remain relevant in Iraq and hope to contain the issue. Right. But it's it, that that's a very different kind of tactic than looking at the region as a whole and seeing the potential breakdown of Syria or the, the, the reinstatement of the Assad regime as an interdependent piece of a bigger regional puzzle where the issue is not our American interests, our American interests aimed at destroying a particular foe, but rather our American interests aimed at maintaining regional stability or even in the more ambitious version 
at inducing a vision of American, uh, uh, no, sorry, not American, in, in inducing a vision of indigenous prosperity where America as a great power can facilitate different kinds of developments, different kinds of struggles and different kinds of breakthroughs in different countries, but with a consistent hand. And we obviously don't get that consistency. I mean, we see immense hypocrisy if we look at the democracy question um, across the region. You know, when the wrong kinds of people win elections, America turns its back. When the right kinds of people win elections, or when there are no elections at all, America enjoys the outcome. Right. So exactly. it's it's that it's just it's it's immense inconsi- inconsistency. I mean, I think that kind of inconsistency has always haunted American promotion of some of its values. Uh, it's and it's not specific to the region. We look at what's happening in Latin America, for instance. It's it's it's. I think it's endemic. Um, but I think that it's, you know, it's it's the the, the 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 fragmentation of what the Middle East represents in the American imagination is something that I couldn't have predicted ten or fifteen years ago. I mean, uh, the, the Middle East always had a set of fixed stereotypes around it in the American imagination. And now it seems that that even as those stereotypes have faded, they've been replaced by a landscape of fractious images and and fractured ideas that don't have any coherence with each other. I mean, and and the Israel issue is, I think, the biggest expression of this. Um, I I think one of the reasons why it's quite easy for the Trump administration to back uh, the Netanyahu government's plan for the Palestinians without any kind of contradiction to its withdrawal from the region is because for, for, for the United States, I think since the 1990s, Israel has never been a Middle Eastern issue. It's been more of an emotional and ideological issue. And so the US, I think for many policymakers, when they see Israel, they do not see Israel as a Middle Eastern state. They see it as an exceptional state, a state that America should always unconditionally support. Um, no matter the geopolitical circumstances. And if that support comes at the cost of Palestinian statehood and comes at the cost of other allies, then America will, will, will maybe compensate those allies or maybe engage the Palestinians in a losing battle to, to provide them with, 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 with a poor, poor substitute for a viable state. But it will never come at the cost of supporting Israel. And I think American policymakers are quite happy with, you know, arguing that when they see Jordan, for instance, or they see Saudi Arabia, or they see Egypt, they will say, these are Middle Eastern states, these are Arab countries, and we look at them as part of our grand strategy. When they see Israel, I don't think they see this as a Middle East issue. I think they see this as an inviolable issue that deals with deeply held emotions of religion, of ideology, of political investment, and I, I think in some cases of knee-jerk reactionism. And that, I think, ultimately is why the Trump administration can do two completely different sets of contradictory policies that you, I think you would not see in, any of, in most past administrations. Right? The, the, the Trump administration can look at different provocations by Iran that could potentially lead to war and ultimately say, we do not want war in the Gulf. We, don't, we do not want war against Iran. We'll simply slap more sanctions on Tehran and sanction the country and leave it to its own devices. We just want the Iranians to stay within their borders and hope that things get better in Lebanon and Syria and Yemen and and Iraq. But in a disconnected way, when they look at Israel, the policymakers in the Trump administration say, well, Israel's different. Israel's not connected to this Middle East puzzle. Israel is an exceptional state. And particularly with this, unfortunately, and this is my personal opinion, 
Unfortunately, with this particular government, the Netanyahu government, if the Netanyahu government wants to push the Palestinian issue towards a certain direction, this is something we have to back unconditionally. And I think this is how we end up with, and again, this is my personal opinion, one of the worst, worst articulations of an Israeli-Palestinian solution that I think we've heard through the Trump Vision for Peace plan since the 1980s when the Jordan is Palestine option came with some elements of the Likud party in Israel. I mean, I, I, there is not a single Arab government that I, I believe really thinks, you know, in, 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 from an emotional standpoint or a strategic standpoint, that this solution for the Palestinians is the one that the entire Arab world has fought and strived and sought to achieve for the last 50 or 60 years. But no, I no, think, I, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I see, I was going to say, I really could not agree possibly more with you on this particular issue. I think I, I take it even further by uh, enabling Israel to the extent that the United States has over the years and specifically the, under this, this president, as I think it, in the long term, this is going to severely, severely undermine Israel in, in just in our, in just about in every, on every, every front. That is, if there is no solution and under the, the so-called piece of, of the, the deal of the century, there's going to be absolutely no solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict under these type of conditions. Uh, Israel is not going to be emerging from the stronger or victorious. This is going to impact on Israel adversely in a very serious way over the years to come because the Palestinian problem is not going to disappear. They are there, they exist, and no wishful thinking is going to be helpful uh, in this regard. So what Trump has done, I think, is undermine Israel's future security by, by advancing his so-called uh, the, the deal of the century. And I absolutely agree with you on this in that yeah. regard. Yeah. And, and I would just add one other thing. I, I think that this is connected to the, 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 the withdrawal of American presence in the region in the following way. You know, that the predominant paradigm since Oslo in principle has always been, you know, for the two-state solution, it's always been the idea that America would offer its good offices as, as hopefully an impartial negotiator. We know that's never been the case, but in theory, it was that America would act through as a mediator, as an arbitrator, as a negotiator, as an international regulator of sorts, and ensure that both the Palestinians and Israeli government would find some viable mutual solution uh, to end a very traumatic conflict. That, that the model was always one built upon bilateralism, on involvement and negotiation. With the latest you know, iteration of the deal of the century, the model's completely changed. It's changed exactly. from one where America has said it will stay involved and help negotiate to one where essentially, I think, they're giving the Netanyahu government a blank check and saying, you can coercively impose whatever you want. It's not our business anymore. And for an, a, a, a great power like America to say this after it was on the White House lawn, right, that this deal was inked. I mean, it's, 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 it's incredible to me how in 25 years, um, you know, we, we, we come to this stage where it was literally in Washington, D.C. that handshakes were brokered and understandings were made that this would be the future. And 25 years later, that same mediator, that same great power says, this is no longer our interest. You can do what you want. It's, and, it's, it's, 
it's it's beyond I mean it's beyond belief what happened. I just want to go back to a point you, you made very well, but as a, just add one other thing, uh, you know the the Arab states, specifically the Palestinian, uh, of course they they want they negotiated with Israel. They they needed the United States to be involved, believing that and which is the case. Only United States could exert some kind of pressure on Israel to make concession to them. So they had no choice but to work with the United States. But now the Palestinians, and for good reason, feel, well, the United States is not going to exert any pressure on Israel to make any kind of concession. Why Why bother? And that is, that is the position that Mahmoud Abbas has taken. That is, he now realized this, the Trump administration will exact no concession. In fact, the opposite is giving Netanyahu pretty much what what he what what he wanted, and and in that sense, in that sense, I think as long, basically, he destroyed the, whatever left of any prospect for peace between the two sides, at least for this foreseeable future. As a result of that, I think you know I, I would go one step further. Um, unless there's a drastic reversal uh, in fortune in two different uh, countries, in both Israel and the United States, in terms of a different president coming to power um, in Washington with a very different vision combined with a post-Netanyahu government, which, as we know, through three elections just hasn't worked out that way in, in Israeli yeah. politics. Unless we get both at the same time, the trajectory they've set is, I think, set in stone. And that gives the Palestinian Authority no stake in maintaining its participation um, in the current trajectory. And this calls into question the very principle that, 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 that Arafat and the PLO acceded to when they you know, became, when they transformed in the 1980s through the early 90s, when they transformed from a militant diaspora actor to a domestic governing force, and they sought to convert their energies into more of a political actor that was enchained to political institutions and the potential kind of the, the, the architects of a new state, you know, it, it, it calls into question, why did they even make this bargain, right? And, and, and so I can understand from the Palestinian side, the immense frustration uh, when they ask themselves, you know, why did we agree to this? Because this was not the vision 25 years ago. Um, and this is not what they signed up for. And yet this is what the circumstance has given them. And I think that you know, it's it, it will not be enough to have, I think, a post-Trump presidency. I mean, I, I really do think that because America treats Israel from a political perspective, forgetting the cultural and you know social ties aside, from a political perspective, because I think now American policymakers, particularly Congress, they treat Israel as such an exceptional, untouchable country that's immune to criticism. It will take an immense act of faith by a post-Netanyahu coalition to reverse course. And, you know, you know, you probably know, I know, you know, Israeli politics far better than, than most other people. You think about the constituencies which are now attached to, you know, the colonization of the West Bank. You think about the constituencies of Israeli politics who are now fully invested in this vision of, 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 of squeezing out Palestinian claims to Jerusalem. How does, how does one reverse that? Right. It takes more than what's happening in Washington. No, I agree with you. I think I think without any question, change of political leadership is necessary. But the problem uh, that I see twofold here, as far as potential change in Israel, one is that Israeli move to the right. If you look at uh, the blue-white uh, party today, and what Gantz has been saying, pretty much echoes almost ninety percent of what Netanyahu has been preaching annexation of the Jordan Valley, maintaining national security all over the West Bank, basically stifling and if not killing the, any prospect of, of independent Palestinian state. 
That's one element. So Israel is moving in that direction. How reversible that might be, I, I question that at this point. The second thing is Israel, like you said, to some extent it has become almost a domestic issue here in the United States. That is, you have this major constituency, the evangelical. The evangelical support Israel comes what may. And every party, be that the Democrats or the Republicans, need the support of the evangelicals. And that is one of the reasons they maintain that kind of approach toward Israel, not not because it's an exceptional state as such, it is in some in some uh, in some respect. But but that is these two elements: the fact that they, Israel is a factor in as in, in American domestic policy, and the fact that Israel has moved to the right to the extent it has already. To me, that is a terribly bad sign as to whether there's going to be any time peace between Israel and the Palestinians, notwithstanding what's happening in the region, and notwithstanding the fact that uh, some of the Arab countries, uh, like Saudi Arabia, the Gulf state, are coming much closer. But they also made it abundantly clear there will be no recognition, no peace treaty, unless the Palestinian problem is resolved. And the Palestinian problem is not going to be resolved as long as these two conditions continue to exist. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I would add just two two more addendum points to build upon that thesis. One is that I think, you know, one of the unfortunate trends in Israeli politics, um, and maybe this is self-inflicted, maybe this is a general trend of the times, but this that this that the implosion of the Israeli left and the lack of a viable uh, you know partner to um to, to to peace negotiators um outside of Israel with the destruction of the Israeli left um uh, the world well, the death of the Israeli left um I would put it and the end of the labor party and whatnot for me it's very disturbing uh because you need a strong counterweight to that right wing coalition uh to 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 represent that and I don't know if that's reversible um I think the second disturbing trend and this is occurring outside Israel is that Israel is, I would call it exceptional in the following way. You know, forgetting aside, it's, you know, the, the, the moral and religious debate. It's exceptional because it's very rare you see such a small country that has such a small economic footprint in America have such outsized powers and uh, ideological sway in Washington to the extent that it can get a presidential administration to police dissent for it. Right. So you think about the Trump administration's executive orders, its uh, crackdown on the BDS movement and uh, various kinds of, uh, of anti-Israeli dissent, the movement in some American states to, to, to make public officials and, 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 and recipients of, of, of funding to sign pro-Israeli loyalty pledges and, and, and whatnot. It's, this, this, is, you know, this is effectively outsourcing a kind of policing. And it's very rare in global history that we see states with not a large military capacity to extend its footprint outside of its homeland have such influence such that it can get other states to do its work for it. And that to me is very disturbing. I mean, as an educator who you know, was, has been reading a lot of the Trump administration's executive orders and its issue, issuances on campus discourse about anti-Semitism and whatnot. This is a very, very worrisome trend. The Trump administration has been able to regulate uh, the you know, dissent against Israel to a degree that no Israeli government can do inside Israel, which is incredible to me. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, I am basically confirming. I mean, as I said, this, you are absolutely right. It is almost unprecedented. And I don't see a 
prospect of significant change, even if leadership change, albeit in Israel is absolutely necessary. I mean, Netanyahu has uh, um, um, ought to get out of out of, of power, and the sooner the better. Israel will not survive another four years of Netanyahu. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think I, I think for me the tipping point to recognizing that Israeli politics had reached a a a, a shocking threshold was when. You know, after um, you know, one of the legacies of Sharon was the creation of the of the Kadima Party, and you know, when Livni came into province and whatnot, and those elections began occurring, and those politics began recycling themselves in the late two thousands and onwards. I remember reading electoral assessments of different Israeli elections with the Kadima Party and the Likud Party and other coalitional parties coming to prominence, and it was the Kadima Party that. Uh, that that evaluators and analysts were calling this is now the new centrist party in Israel, yeah, Kadima. Yeah. And of course, you know, if if, if you write it, it, and you know, you you obviously know this better than anyone else. To call Kadima a centrist party, right? It, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it's just it's it's incredible to me. I mean, the analogy yeah. I give my students is that imagine an America in which there was a Tea Party that broke off from the Republican Party, and the Tea Party is now the dominant party in American politics. And the old Republican Party, a separate party, is now the centrist party, which means yeah. there are no Democrats left. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I absolutely. It is. It is what I, you exactly said it right. I, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time. Uh, I think it's uh, wonderful to hear you to hear your views on the subject. Uh, in any event, thank you so much, Shane. So I look forward to meeting you in person, hopefully sooner than later. Yeah, Once no, ab- absolutely. Virus, I'll be, I'll be in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, no, no, God willing, you will. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.